Good morning, church. <clears throat> For all the visitors out there, I'm Chris. Nice to meet you, everybody. I know you can't see it uh, on the stream, but this place is packed to the gills, contrary to what Leah said. I'm kidding, it's not. But all the people that God intended to be here are here, and all the people that God intended to watch online are watching right now. It's a pleasure to be able to be here. Uh, we're m- making our way through 1 Corinthians uh, and, and listening and reading and hearing all the wisdom that Paul would want to uh, impart on us about how good Christ is and how um, much we struggle with trying to figure it out ourselves at our own peril. There's going to be a lot more of that today. I titled this sermon, More Than a Golden Calf, because uh, as long as I can remember, when I think of idols, that's a good one. That's a calf. It's made of gold. It's easy. I can put my hands on that. That's an idol. Let's not worship it. Let's not make it. Let's not celebrate it. But what Paul's talking about today regarding idolatry is significantly more than just a golden calf. Uh, some things are very easy to pick out, some not so much. So uh, we'll read 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 22. Feel free to read along with it if you've got your Bible with. If not, it'll be up on the screen. Let's get to it. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we, who are many, are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Let's pray. Lord, there's some pretty uh, tough words here. Very challenging, uh, very challenging things to read through. Lord, I pray that as we... uh, as we study this word, as I seek to divide it, Lord, that I am able to divide it rightly, Lord, I pray that your word speaks infinitely louder than any of mine would ever hope to speak, Lord. And I pray that you hide me safely and securely behind your cross, um, and we have a, a time together to learn more about you by your word. Thank you for this time together. Thank you for these challenging passages. As you need, sounds like my prayer. Amen. 
All right, so if you've been following along, we've been talking the, the last bit here about rights. Paul's been talking about his rights that he has uh, foregone and what these means. And now we're talking about idolatry. And it may not seem intuitive, but Paul knows how this goes. Anytime you talk about liberties or you talk about rights or you talk about what you are allowed to do or what you may do, there's a temptation to take those things and make them your strongest desire. I'm going to pursue that above everything. I'm going to ignore God and instead pursue that which God has granted me. As usual, it's very easy to commit to do things God's way. Very few people that would call themselves Christians, at least, would say, no, 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 I want to do it my way. I think I know better than God. That's easy to say, no, I commit to do it God's way, but it's very, very hard to test our actions against God's word, which is precisely what we see Paul doing here. It's very easy to make what we like the focus of our worship. There are certain things I like. I have preferences. It's very, very tempting to say, those things are what I'll gravitate towards and I'll spend all my time there. Despite the fact that God may be pulling me in other ways, he may be bringing things into my life that aren't my personal preferences in an effort to change my preferences, discipline me, or give me an opportunity to share something with somebody that he intends for me to do. Quick history lesson that Paul goes into. I'm not going to do this, of course, other than what Paul talked about. But Paul speaks a lot about the Jews of old. He does this quite a bit. He's, he's writing a letter to people that know a lot about Jewish culture. But over time, we're going to see Gentiles coming into the mix that maybe don't know this. But as you can imagine, I think what Paul's trying to do is say, hey, uh, we follow in a lineage here that God was a part of, right? Yes, Gentiles are in the mix now. But remember all these old times, <laughs> all the things that happened with the Jews? God was there. They were God's people. What does that mean? All the Jews participated in the rites of Judaism. If you rewind the clock, what Paul's trying to address is there was a time when everybody did all the things. It wasn't about rights, and it wasn't about uh, what do you feel like doing and, and going out and reaching everybody under the sun. It was about here's what we're supposed to do. Here's the law. Let's fulfill it as best we can. Whoops, I screwed up. No problem. We'll do a sacrifice for that. That atones for that a bit, and away we go. All Jews participated in that. All the Jews participated in the Exodus with Moses. We don't see in that story this idea about like, all right, all the, the good Jews get to come with us and the rest are going to stay back here and have to be slaves. Everybody got to go. Regardless of how God felt about them at the time, he saved them. They were his people. Regardless of how they felt about God. But like Christians, what Paul's saying is despite these larger covenantal style blessings, he wasn't pleased with all of them. And we see this happening when they're in the wilderness. There's a lot of chastisement that's occurring, a lot of discipline that's occurring. Because God is saying, do this, they refuse to do this. I remember as a young child re reading the story of the golden calf and thinking to myself, what is going on with these idiots? Like, you, up to the mountain he goes and God's up there. And like, hey, while he's gone, the guy that just took, made all this stuff happen. Incredible presence of God, real end times kind of stuff happen. He goes away and like, hey, let's build a calf and worship it. I remember thinking to myself, well, that's crazy. What Paul's saying is the reason that happened, the reason we talk about it is because God knows we're going to be dealing with the same thing. Maybe not quite so on the nose as, hey, the pastor's sick today. Let's make a golden calf and worship it. That probably won't happen. I guess it could, but let's hope not. But there's other more subtle ways that we see our preferences, our desires, our understandings taking over. And then, of course, what Paul's trying to say is, yes, the Old Testament is a testament to Jesus. 
The examples that we see God's chosen people going through, the things they do, the way that they're treated in the Old Testament, should be very clear to us to parallel the eventuality of Christ's coming. We do well to avoid the temptations that they fell into headlong. Right? When you read that, when I read that story, when I hear it today, I still shake my head. Are you kidding me? I mean, a golden calf then? Now, it's one thing if it was 20 years later and people maybe were starving, but like things are going pretty good, so it seems. They fell into those temptations. They've documented it. What Paul's saying is when we read that, when we recount those stories, those aren't just interesting tales of, of foregone people that, you know, were, that was a different time and that mattered. No, it's the same thing. The Jews suffered because of their poor choices. Let us not do the same. The whole point of Paul talking about this is not just to bash the Jews of old and say, see, God was ticked at those guys because they didn't do what they were told. He's saying, God showed us through them how God's faithfulness transcends their ability to do the right thing. That said, let's not dance in that ring too long. Let's not continually repeat the history of the failed people that don't know what to do and keep screwing up over and over and over again with their hands in the air and and manufacturing new idols. Will we sin? Yes. Can we repent? Yes. Is there forgiveness? Yes. Great news. But we want to minimize those instances where we are sinning and repenting and sinning and repenting. And we do so by putting God in the proper place. And Paul kind of breaks this down for us in, in four key points. No tacit worship or toleration of idols. No sexual immorality. No putting Christ to the test. And no complaining about God's providence. These are things that, that, that he mentions here across <laughs> four verses. Starting in 1 Corinthians 10, 7. Do not be idolatrous, some of those were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That that he's quoting is from the golden calf scenario. Some people made the golden calf. That's idol, idolatry, idol worship, no, no question. But there were others that he talks about that sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play in the presence of the golden calf. They participated in the worship ceremony of the golden calf, even though they may have told themselves, well, I wasn't really worshiping the calf. That was just a tacit worship, right? Or I at least tolerated the fact that there was a golden calf. Paul's saying, knock that off. No sexual immorality. No putting Christ to the test. And no complaining about God's providence. And so, logically, if what they did was so bad, why don't we just forget about it? The the reality of this situation is this is very, very commonplace in history. It was commonplace for the Jews. When somebody had been... uh, so badly behaved, they brought shame to the family, we would just stop talking about them. <laughs> they ceased to be. Oh, you got leprosy, you went to the leper camp, they would just remove you from the rolls, and what family? I never had a brother, right? Well, you did. No, no I don't recall. I don't recall a brother. What Paul's saying here is the reason we're not doing that, we don't just forget to talk about their sins and leave them behind, is because those examples, their bad behavior that are documented are a benefit for us and for God's glory. We get to learn God gets glorified as we hopefully get better and better and better through God's grace. There are also reminders that others have failed on their own. Anytime you want to see what happens when even really, really devout people decide to pick up the, you know, bootstrap themselves into some amazing thing, go read the Bible a little bit. There's a ton of people that are quote-unquote good folks that start doing things their own way and fail, oftentimes spectacularly. And finally, what we see Paul mention here is God will not let us be tempted beyond our ability, 
But the second half of this is really important. With the temptation, he will provide the way of escape. A lot of times what we'll hear is people say, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Boop. And we stop right there. And then we wonder why people in the church are feeling like, well, I don't know, that it can't be a temptation beyond my ability or God wouldn't have let me do it. Right? Didn't we just hear that? No. He provided a, a way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. If we decide to sit and partake in the temptation, if we stand right next to it and kind of move our fingers around it, maybe dip our toes in there and say, well, it's not so bad, right? This tree won't, it won't kill me. I mean, I could look at it, you know. Then pretty soon what we find is, yes, God has provided a way of escape, and we opted not to do it because we ignored the last half of this, that there's a way of escape, and instead said, God wouldn't let me be tempted beyond my ability. Thus, the fact that I'm feeling the temptation, and I know that God wouldn't let me do that, means that I have the ability to withstand the temptation. And even if I supposedly sin, that's technically God's fault because he was supposed to keep me from the temptation. That's not what any of this says. This doesn't say stand strong in the face of all temptation because God would never allow you to fall. That is not what it says. That's how a lot of us act. With the temptation, he'll provide a way of escape. When temptation comes into our life, when God allows temptation to come into our life, when he lets temptation come into our life, it will not be beyond our ability insofar as we have an ability to escape by the grace of God. If we choose not to escape, now we're right in the thick of it. And here's where kind of the rubber meets the road. Escape. You say we shouldn't face it? You know, here in America, we're not a big fans of surrender. We don't like to flee. We want to stand, fight, put up our dukes, give it what for. If Christ is for me, who could be against me? Let's, let's dance, idolatry. Paul's advice? These are my words. 1 Corinthians 10, 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. If you're here a couple weeks back, we talked about something else Paul mentioned to flee from. That was sexual immorality. Now we see a dot being connected here. He's connecting sexual immorality to idolatry. And the, same, the results should be the same in our lives. Run. Don't stand and deliver. Don't try, to, don't try to talk yourself out of bad behavior when it comes to things like idolatry or sexual immorality. It's tempting to do that. It's tempting to say, no, 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 I think I've sorted this out. I think I'm strong enough to... to, to to, to, to successfully endure this temptation. Paul says you're not, and you should go away from it. God has provided you a means of escape. I know he's done that. That's promised right here. I just read that. Take it. Escape. And as he's doing all this, and it may seem like, gosh, he's awfully condescending to tell them, but he commends them as sensible. 10.14, I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Think about my words. Study my words. Test them against Scripture. You'll find that what Paul's saying is right. Paul then explains the danger of idol worship. Is the food offered anything? Is the idol anything? We talked about this in a, in a prior chapter as well. No. Right? The food sacrificed to idol is just food. The idols aren't real. But the sacrifice itself is something. And that's what Paul's trying to get at here. The food is food. We know the idols aren't real, but the heart condition, the choices, the sinful choice to sacrifice to something that is not God, to ascribe power to something that God does not give any power to, that is demonic. And Paul warns we can't have it both ways. We cannot sacrifice to an, the idol of our choosing and to God. 
I cannot offer a sacrifice to myself and also to God. You will pick a side. Just can't do it. It's cut and dried. There are people who say, no, it's not true. We use our own well-being as a measure of what God's doing in our lives. You're not going to find that in Scripture. If I choose to drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons, then I am choosing to drink the cup of demons. The cup of the Lord is out the door now. I can't do it. In order to, part- to drink of the cup of the Lord, in order to fully participate in the sacrament of a holy communion, I have to ascribe to God the power to God. If I come to the table with a demon under my arm and say, well, this guy's pretty powerful too. Let's just all have this. No. No. You have invalidated the sacrament. You can't partake of both. You will pick a side. It's either the cup of the Lord or the cup of demons. The table of the Lord or the table of demons. Now, Paul ends this with words that really are not minced. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? And if you're wondering, well, why would it really matter if God's God and he's all-powerful, why does he care if I, if I put a lock arms of the demon and try to, to, to do a little bit of demon worship? It doesn't matter. God's more powerful. Paul's answer is this. You do not want to make the Lord jealous. The time you should be giving to the Lord, the worship you should be giving to the Lord, is due the Lord. If you give it to something else, you might provoke the Lord to jealousy. And if you think you're stronger than the Lord, another rhetorical question to Paul here, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? No. Are we stronger than he? No. Paul's saying, remember that. Tell yourself that. When temptation comes and you think, I'm just going to set up shop here and spend some time on this altar. You know, I like the things that are going on here. I don't want to give up this part of my life. I struggle with this. There are things that I really like that I know can easily become idols because they once were. And I want to go back to there. I know the pathway there. I've got a nice little rut worn in there. The place where I spent time at that altar is comfortable to me. I know my way around it. It's demonic. It adds no value to me and it could provoke the Lord to jealousy and I am not stronger than God and ought not do it. So let's circle back on this, cover these four points more in depth. Idolatry is more than a and golden calf. Every time. It's more than a golden calf, not and golden calf. So let's cover these four points. No tacit worship or toleration of idols, no sexual immorality, no putting Christ to the test, and no complaining about God's providence. These aren't my four points. These are Paul's, but I'm going to talk about them. So no tacit worship or toleration of idols. This is, this is one that I think... Is a, all four of these get head nods. I would be doing the same thing. Oh, absolutely. I agree with all that. Fine. But what are, we, what are we talking about here? Don't encourage the idolatry of others. Now, this might seem like, well, I would never do that. But we, we, we do this all the time by saying, oh, I would never boast in Christ. But you should boast in that thing that you did. That's great. Good for you, right? I encourage you to pursue that. You should take that thing that's clearly a distraction from you and pulling you away from service in Christ and an understanding and communion with the Lord and focus on it even more. Why? Maybe because I get a benefit from it, which is our second bullet. Don't enjoy the fruits of the idolatry. Now, I don't want to, I don't want to mince words here too much, right? But Paul talked about food offered to idols. This wouldn't have been a fruit of the idol per se. Idol worship was occurring. They've got all this left over me. They're selling it. You need it. Buy it. Eat it. The meat itself is not tainted. But what you don't want to do, for instance, would be to encourage them to sacrifice even more to idols so you can get an even deeper discount on meat. Ideally, you're going to be ministering to them and talking to them about the folly of their ways. And eventually, they no longer sacrifice meat to idols, and you'll be getting your source of meat someplace else. But certainly, encouraging others to continue idolatry 
that's very, very bad for their eternal condition, of course. Doing so so that you can reap a benefit from that. For instance, if their idolatry is thievery, and they share some of that, or you get to go over and have a nice meal with them, or watch things on their big screen TV, or whatever. It's real tempting to be like, well, it's not really my problem. I know where I sit. I know who I hold in high esteem, and that's the Lord God. But this guy, yeah, I'm letting him remain in his sinful state so that I can have something that I consider a benefit. That would be toleration, perhaps even tacit worship. By my, my non-action, I'm allowing this to happen. Inaction can be an action. It's so tempting to just not say anything. Well, who am I? Who am I to tell you what to do, right? Another great American thing. We love that in America. Nobody's going to tell me, I have the liberty to worship what I like. That's true, you do. But you, uh, you don't want to in the long run. Over time, it's not going to add any value to you or your family or your friends, your loved ones. It may seem good now, but eventually it's going to rip you apart. And the last bullet there is if you see something, say something. Those last two bullets really hit home for me because I, uh, I, don't ever, I don't want to tarnish my witness by sounding too heavy-handed. I don't know if this sounds familiar to anybody else. I, I don't want to come out of left field with somebody I barely know and say, repent, turn or burn. You know, you've got it all wrong. Oh, the time is short. You know, the end is near. Banging on my signboard and waving my... That's what I see in my head. And so what, I, what do I do a lot of times? Nothing at all. I miss my opportunity to participate in the Great Commission and the Great Command. I don't love my neighbors myself, and I don't share the Word of God at all because I don't want to seem offensive to those. Well, spoiler alert, the gospel is going to be offensive. If we see somebody that's struggling to get by, and they're constantly asking us about church, or you spend a lot of time at church, we're like, yeah, I don't like church. You know, what you got here is the door kicked wide open, and we're like, no, that door shouldn't have probably been open. I don't want to talk about that. I'm late for lunch. I can get in trouble at work for this. There's a million reasons not to share the good news. In so doing, what we are doing is encouraging the idolatry of others because they don't know the truth. Paul's talking about this. Yes, the Jews did the same exact thing. They knew the truth. They knew who God was. He had just done so much for them. They still built an idol. Knowing Christ doesn't prevent us from manufacturing idols. The quote from uh, John Calvin is fantastic. We, we love making new idols. We smash one and it's two in its place because that becomes a... We, I've built an idol and then I build a hammer and I smash my idol. This is my new idol smashing hammer. Can you believe this hammer I made? Incredible. Oh no, it's an idol. Well, I need a bigger idol smashing hammer. And we spend our whole lives making bigger idols that we use to destroy the prior idols. And all that, one, one day we realize, I don't even know if Christ's in the picture anymore. Number two, no sexual immorality. This, again, I feel like we talk about this a lot. Why? Because Paul talks about this a lot. He's watching it rip churches apart. In his time, we're watching it rip churches apart in our time. Paul is not a fool, and neither are we. If you sit there and say, oh, that's not even a problem in our church, I'm telling you. I mean, maybe not in this church right now. At least that I'm aware. I don't know of any, any big uh, you know, underpinnings where this has been a problem. But I can, in our city... Countless times in the nation, in the world, countless times. Just because we don't know about it doesn't mean it's not there, and that's exactly what Paul's talking about. Sexual immorality is a very, very insidious idol. It, it can sometimes appear in seemingly nonchalant ways. Uh, the wonderful thing about the, the wonderful trickiness, I guess you could say, about sexual immorality is that it can come as a masquerade of something that seems very good. You know, this is something that God has ordained and blessed in a certain context. And we, we see that context get a little blurry around the edges, and pretty soon we're like, well, 
you know, it's marriage that it's okay, so why don't I take marriage to a bad place? And now I can participate in this without it being a sin because I met the letter of the law. And super dangerous. Now what we've done is once again put ourselves in God's position. Putting our, to break it right down, to putting our sexual desires before God's commands is idolatry. In any way, shape, or form. An affair? Yep, I think everybody agrees with that. How about pornography? How about watching a sketchy TV show that isn't really pornography? I mean, it's rated PG. All the things we want to do is what does God say? What does the Word say? And what does that mean to me? Do I feel a temptation here? Where's the escape? How do I get away from this? What do I need to do? God, help me. Absolutely right. Lean on one another. I know that the the church has a very sketchy history with regards to sexual immorality. And and quite frankly, really, really bad counsel has been given. Uh, Let us repent of that, church. Let us give wise counsel from the Word of God alone. It is sufficient, even in this. Help people. Help one another. Encourage one another to find those ways out. The escape plan might be to commune with your local church about an issue that you're struggling with. To find an accountability partner, somebody that you can engage in a moment's notice that will pick up the phone at 2 a.m. and pray with you. Get into the Word with you. Encourage you. Paul knows this all too well. I'm sure for the letter he's addressing here, now that he's talked about this yet again, he's hearing other stories and other letters of people that are saying, here's what I heard going on, and that doesn't seem right. And Paul's like, well, it's not right. But y'all got to knock it off. It may not be a golden calf, but it's just as sinister. It's one of these, it's a golden calf that all of a sudden is just there. When you hear, there are some people that maybe that just set out to be idolaters in a sexual immorality way. But nearly every tale you hear is like, uh, well, it was just, you know, it was a little thing. I, I didn't build a golden calf. I I just put some gold on the ground and then another piece on top of it. It kind of looked like a hoof. And I thought to myself, that's funny how much that looks like a hoof, but it can't be a hoof because I would never make a golden calf. And then pretty soon there was four of those and we were joking about how silly that would be if that became a calf. And then there were legs. And then one day, someone walks in your house and says, this is a golden calf. Well, no, it's not. That's just a pile of gold. (laughs) It's calf shaped and I worship it, but as a joke, it's just like a stupid thing. It's not really like I really worship it. This is how every single sexual immorality, every single moral failure comes apart. And I would assert it's how every single idol worship begins. Something very small, something seemingly innocuous. This doesn't really matter. It, it, it's a tiny little thing. It's, it, it's in the grand scheme of things is, is irrelevant. I'm still going to church. I'm still praying. I still love my wife. I still take care of my kids. I, I'm doing all the good stuff. Look at all these works I've got. And this one little thing is just my own little thing. And then pretty soon it becomes life-consuming. Next one, no putting Christ to the test. I think this is a tricky one. We do expect Christ to work in our lives. We ought to. The Bible promises he's going to do it. Through the Holy Spirit, he's going to change us, make us a new creation. We do not expect Christ to work in our ways. And you might say, well, that's not true. I can expect Christ to work in my ways, right? No, I don't think you should. We should expect Christ to work in our lives, but we should be seeking the way in which Christ will work in our lives. Not the way I would do it. I have a way that I would do things, but I shouldn't expect Christ to work in that way. Now, could he work in the way? Could we just, it all came together. The plan I have is the biblical plan. It falls into God's will and Christ begins to work in that way. Yes, that can absolutely happen. And it's wonderful when it does. But don't expect that. 
Right? What we see Paul talking about time and time again is like, yeah, God's working through me in all kinds of ways to where my body's destroyed and I spend time in prison. Do you think that's Paul's choice? I doubt it. Could be, but I doubt it. But since he has no expectation for things to go the way Paul would want it, then he knows he has nothing to boast in. He's never going to have himself put in a position of possible idolatry. Hey, you know what? I thought we would do it this way. God did it that way. Me and God, we're thinking the same way. Uh-oh. Whoop. Creepy little idol. Ding. One little, eh, maybe me. Maybe I'm closer to God than I thought I was. That's how that stuff starts. <laughs> also, all some. I swear I proofread these. Uh, also, we shouldn't treat our Savior's work as a license to sin. I've heard this since I was a kid. When we talk about putting Christ to the test, there's two ways. One is, um, God, uh, Christ would never let me sin, so everything I do is cool. Um, or I'm going to decide what it is that I want to do, and then I expect Christ to imbue that with his power. This last one is, I'm going to do whatever I want because I'm saved. I'm going, I got to lose, right? You told me, once saved, always saved. Nobody's going to slip through, right? Isn't that one of the doctrines that I hear so much about? Can't get away. Perseverance of the saints. I'm a saint. I'm going to persevere. So I'm going to do whatever I want. Uh, until the Holy Spirit does something miraculous in me and pulls me out of all this stuff. I'm going to ignore all this notion of having escapes. I'm just going to send it up, knowing that at some point between here and the end of this, I'll have time to repent because I can't get... That is not what we're supposed to be doing. That is what a lot of people this time love to do. I'm very holy. I've been adrained. I've been blessed and dunked and dipped and sprinkled. Whatever was required, I punched the ticket. I've got it. I'm good to go. Not true. It is not a license to sin. It's a license to serve, but not a license to sin. If you see the work of Christ in your life as giving you liberty beyond what anybody else is, and you're going to seize it, then let's go back and reread chapter 9. Because Paul's saying, oh, there's plenty of liberties that come with Christ, and I lay them all down at the foot of Christ. He gets them. Oh, I have the liberty to eat meat, but I don't want to do it if it it causes harm to the cause of Christ. I certainly don't want to sin, but I don't even want to partake of liberties if it hurts the, hurts the cause of Christ. And the last one's no complaining about God's providence. We had onions in Egypt, right? This is like in the Bible, they complain. Well, we had great things. At least we would have been slaves, but at least we had food. At least we could do this and that and the other. There is no room for this. This is also tricky. Basically, questioning God's sovereignty implicates our lack of faith. If I think that God's not quite sovereign enough, or he didn't see this coming, or, yeah, I know this is pretty good, but it could have been better. And why God? Why me? What it speaks very loudly is, I know better than God. I know better than God. I would have done this a different way. He didn't see the outcome that I see. If he would have just asked me... I would have told him to do this, that, and the other, and we'd be here and there and the other. This doesn't mean that everything is great in our opinion. This doesn't mean that everything that God provides us is exactly what we want, and we're going to immediately be filled with joy about it. No, but this means we take time, we study this, we gather in a place like this, we ponder this, we think on the goodness of God, we trust his word that God wants good for me. This situation feels bad. This poverty, this job loss, this th- whatever you say, God, Why? Is, is for our good. Somehow it's for our good. I'm going to meditate on that. I'm going to pray. I'm going to, I'm going to ask God about that. I'm going to pray that the Spirit gives me comfort in this and, and reassures me because I'm weak and I want to go fix it myself. I want to take over. I want to pull the reins away from God. I want to be angry at God 
for the way this went down. Grumbling that God didn't do what we wanted puts us above God. There's just no two ways about it. Those that are parents, you know, you got kids and there'll come a time, we got some youngsters here that maybe aren't quite into the, into the place where they think they know better than you, but there'll come a time when they will. I know I was much smarter than my parents. I saw this plaque once that said, teenagers, move out now while you know everything. I related to that as a teenager. Yeah, that's what I should have done when I was so smart and knew everything. But this is a very common thing. And as parents, you see this with your kids and you're like, you don't know anything about anything. You don't know what's going on out there. You can't just go out and find a house and move in. You got to sign paperwork. You got to commit to this. You got to have an income. You got to have, well, I'm going to get my own house and we're going to have a million cats and a 40,000 horses. Like, no, you're not. No one's going to have 40,000. What are you crazy? Well, that's what I'm going to do. And we would brush it off as, as you foolish children. We typically wouldn't say, oh, you sinful being, how dare you question my sovereignty as your father? Do you before? But that's how we view God. No, God knows what's good for us and he is working for our good. And sometimes that means we have to come home early. And sometimes that means we have to go to bed even though we're in the middle of a movie. I say this stuff to my daughter and I mean it. I'm not saying, watch this, she loves this movie. She doesn't need to go to bed. Go to bed early. Sovereign, in the bed. That'll show her who's boss. I'm boss. I don't do that. I really do love her. But when it comes to God, we're like, oh, thanks, God. You know, I can say this to my daughter, but I treat God like he's up, up there, you know, just waiting to wrap my knuckles. God loves me. He wants the best for me. When things seem to be going really sideways in this world, it's easy to say, well, that's it. God's forgotten. I slipped through the cracks. We had onions in Egypt. Our old house at least had hot air, and now we're, it's freezing in here. And God's like, yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> but uh, I'm doing something. Trust that. Trust me. Maybe you made a bad choice, and this is the, this is the ramification of your bad decision. Oh, how would I know that, God? Uh, probably through prayer and meditation. Read the Word. Seek the Lord. All this stuff sounds so easy to say, and it's so hard to do. How do we know that? Because Paul wrote a letter talking about it. <laughs> if this was happening all the time in those days and these days, we, he wouldn't have written it in his letter, and we wouldn't be preaching about it. Yet here we are. We don't want to put ourselves above God. So what about us? As mentioned, the human heart is an idol factory, but Jesus can change that today. He can change it today. Now, I'm not saying you'll never struggle with idolatry ever again. I can't make that claim. Could you never struggle after today? Possibly. God's God. He could take that away like that. But don't count on that. Jesus can change it today, though. You can start making less idols. You can start understanding what idols look like. Understand what that means when we get caught up in them. Second, if you're looking for a church home to focus worship on God alone, we'd love to have you. If there's if little else in this congregation, I hope that all that are here this message understand. God alone is do our worship. Not this building, not the pastors, not the, the music ministry, not the songwriters, nobody. I talk a lot about how thankful I am to have uh, Leah and Mike and my wife, Jane, that come up here and, and sing with me. My daughter, Emma, is running all the slides in the tech. If you're watching this on stream, it's because of her hard work up there. But w- do not worship us. We are tools in the hands of the master at best, dull tools in many regards. Here we worship on God alone. If that's what you want to do, come with us. And if you're a member here, pray for new eyes to see what parts of our lives may be idols. When I talk about things being more than a golden calf, it is. Idols become very, they're very, very insidious. It never stops. We are, our, our heart is an idol factory. We will make factory, idol after idol. We'll make a new factory to make new idols because we think we know best and we don't. 
Pray for our eyes to see where that's going wrong in our lives. What parts of it are sideways? What, what, what things we could, we could move away, give, give worship back to God in that regard. Take it away from ourselves. Take it away from our idols and give it back to God where it belongs. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for challenging, challenging scriptures in many regards, Lord. I thank you for the promise that we are not to go this alone. That as we, as we look and we pray and we meditate to, to find idols, that that itself could become an idol, but we don't want that to be the case, Lord. We want to put you front and center. As we begin to journey, perhaps, through repentance and forgiveness of things that we know are problems in our lives, Lord, I pray that we lean on you for that as well. We don't need to get cleaned up and then come to God. We need to come to God and then get cleaned up. This is not work for us to do alone. This is work for us to do in Congress with our sovereign and all-powerful God whose son died on a cross and whose spirit is with us all the time helping us to make better decisions helping to change our hearts literally as new creations to stop doing the things that we've always done our whole life and start doing new things Lord I'm thankful for that I'm thankful for a promise that transcends us and our worst possible decisions I'm thankful for a savior that gave everything to take care of everything Lord it is finished and it can be finished today for those that don't know who you are 